Welcome to episode 11 of History Stories for My Son, the podcast where we remember that history is a story that should be shared with every generation. As always, I'll ask if you like this podcast and would like it to continue, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review, and share it with your friends. This week, I will tell you the story of Elizabeth I, the Virgin Queen. The year is 1554. The place, London, England. The scene, a beautiful young woman, red-haired and fiery, is dragged into the Tower of London. She angrily denies wrongdoing, for a time defying the armed men around her and refusing to go further. She's not a traitor, she declares. She is loyal to her half-sister Mary, the Queen of England, and played no part in the recent plot to overthrow her. She is eloquent and compelling, as always. But the guards' orders leave them no discretion. Eventually she is forced inside and locked away to await her fate. The young woman is Princess Elizabeth, second child of Henry VIII, and at the time, first in the line of succession for the throne. Far from providing her any protection, her position puts her in great danger. The queen and the queen's advisors see her as a threat and a potential rival. Things must have looked bleak to that young woman sitting in her cell. She was only 21, but she lived in an age of violence where justice was arbitrary and political. She knew what she faced. She had been under three when her own mother, Anne Boleyn, was beheaded, essentially for the crime of giving birth to Elizabeth rather than the son her father wanted. Though she'd been too young to understand at the time it happened, Elizabeth had grown up with the knowledge of what happened to her mother, grown up understanding that life in her world was very cheap, even, perhaps especially, for royalty. It must have seemed so unfair. She'd worked very hard, impressing every tutor she ever had with her quick mind and limitless appetite for knowledge. All her tutors agreed that she was their brightest pupil. Already she spoke seven languages and understood the political, economic, and military situation in Europe better than all but a few statesmen. She had big ideas for her country. And all for nothing, it must have seemed. Try to put yourself in her shoes, pacing her chambers, looking out on the city she could no longer visit, wondering when the guards would come for her as they'd come for her mother. Picture her in your mind, those light, piercing eyes distant in contemplation, wondering at her fate. She couldn't know it, but her fate was being decided in another dark chamber where a man named Thomas Wyatt was being put to the question. Wyatt had planned the failed coup to replace the Catholic Queen Mary with the Protestant Elizabeth, his interrogators offered him one heck of a deal. Implicate Elizabeth 
accuse her of having participated in the coup, and he would be pardoned. He could save his own life. All he had to do was point the finger. All he had to do was condemn the princess to death. He refused, proclaimed Elizabeth entirely innocent, and went to his death, accepting total responsibility for the rebellion. And so, rather than dying at the age of 21, as less than a historical footnote that none of us would have heard of, Elizabeth was freed in 1555, and in 1558, after Mary's natural death, she became Queen of England. She would, in fact, be the greatest Queen of England, and the greatest European monarch of her age. And so, the course of history was changed profoundly by a single human's choice. And so, rather than the tower being the end of Elizabeth's story, it was merely, to borrow from another great English leader, the end of the beginning. Although born the daughter of a king, Elizabeth's succession was far from probable. She was born out of, and to some symbolized, the greatest religious schism in English history. Uh, Henry's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, uh, had not given him the son that he wanted. And this biological quirk of fate had profound consequences for the rest of English history. Henry desiring a son and having uh, taken a fancy to another lady in his court by the name of Anne Boleyn, decided the solution was to annul his marriage. It's kind of a fancy word for divorce. In a world where divorces weren't actually allowed, it allowed people to pretend like a marriage had never happened. And so long as the right authorities, the church, uh, said that uh, it never happened, then one could end their marriage without the taint of, uh, of a divorce, which would not have been acceptable at the time. Marriage was for life then. And unless you were a very important person who could get the church to, to pretend that the marriage had never happened. Unfortunately, uh, Catherine of Aragon uh, had powerful family members back in Europe, uh, and Henry VIII was unable to convince the Pope to annul his marriage. And so he uh, had a I think what can only be described as the most consequential temper tantrum in all of human history, uh, where he decided if you, the Pope, aren't going to give me what I want, then I'm going to take all of my toys and create a brand new church. And that's exactly what he did. He declared that England was now Protestant. He named himself as the head of the new Protestant Church of England, uh, and as the head of that church, he annulled his marriage himself. No pope necessary. Unfortunately, for everyone concerned, Anne Boleyn didn't give him the son he wanted either. Her only child was Elizabeth. Ironically, given that she would go on to be maybe the greatest English monarch of all time, Henry was very disappointed 
in her birth. And it was only a couple years later that he tired of Anne uh, and decided uh, to move on to the next wife. Uh, Anne didn't even get the courtesy of an annulment, and s- instead she was falsely accused of treason and beheaded. Henry's next wife, Jane Seymour, finally gave Henry his coveted son. Oh, she died in childbirth for the effort, and the boy Edward was named heir to the throne. Elizabeth was placed in her younger brother's household and carried the baptismal cloth at his christening. Uh, Elizabeth herself was stripped of the title of princess and taken out of the line of succession. Uh, but it, perhaps in a strange way, this was a blessing because it allowed her to grow up in relative obscurity. She still had all of the advantages of a noblewoman. She still you know, lived in a royal household. She had tutors, lived in palaces, but she didn't have the spotlights. Uh, people didn't expect her to succeed to the throne. And so she was able to have, I guess, as close to a normal childhood as a noblewoman living in that environment could. She spent some years in a country estate living with her half-siblings, and she and Edward, both having lost their mothers at a very young age, formed a strong bond of um, uh, friendship and uh, sibling affection that would last for the rest of Edward's life. While some in Elizabeth's position might have resented the boy, she never held him responsible for their father's choices and treated him with warm, big-sisterly protectiveness. Her relationship with her elder half-sister Mary was more frosty. Mary was less broad-minded, and there's some indication she did hold Elizabeth responsible for the fact that Henry VIII annulled his marriage to Mary's mother, Catherine, in order to marry Elizabeth's mother, Anne. But uh, Elizabeth was apparently very engaging and likable, and eventually she kind of turned even Mary around. Maybe they they were never close, um, but she at least got married to a point where she regarded her as a sister, which would become important later. She also worked on her relationship with her father. Her father was very distant and aloof and didn't have much time for his children, but she made an effort to write to him regularly. Uh, she made a gift of her translations uh, to him and uh, you know, wrote in a very affectionate, daughter-like manner, um, admiration, whether it was calculated flattery or just a, a daughter trying desperately to connect with her father. It, uh, it did have a positive impact. Eventually, Henry uh, softened to his daughter and restored her to the line of succession, uh, making her a princess again, though she was still third uh, behind her younger brother, Edward, and her older sister, Mary. So even at that point, uh, it would have seemed very unlikely to Elizabeth uh, and to any other observer that she was going to be the monarch. And indeed, when Elizabeth was 14 and her father passed away, it was her brother, uh, only nine years old, who became king, King Edward VI. Elizabeth was taken into the household of Thomas Seymour, who was a baron, uh, and he was uncle to uh, 
King Edward, and brother to the Lord Protector, Lord Protector being an adult who um, basically led the country on behalf of the child king, since the, the king was too young to govern on his own behalf. And unfortunately for Elizabeth, Thomas Seymour, who she was now living with, was jealous of his brother's power, and he schemed to use Elizabeth in his plans to overthrow the Lord Protector. There's some indication he may have even made inappropriate advances on Elizabeth, uh, even while his wife was still alive. And after his wife's death, he uh, ho hoped to marry Elizabeth, uh, evidently believing that if he could marry a royal heir known to be close to her king brother, that that would put him in position to topple his own brother, uh, the Lord Protector, and make himself the de facto ruler of England. But uh, his plotting was found out, and the theme you're probably seeing right now is that, uh, to borrow from a recent fiction, people who play the Game of Thrones and lose tend to pay with their life. And uh, Thomas was no exception. He was beheaded in 1549, neither the first nor the last in a long line of people who lost their heads uh, trying to become the country's ruler. <laughs> Elizabeth was only 15. Uh, you know, this is again another good place to pause and reflect on how this must have all looked from her perspective. I mean, she was at an age that, in modern times, uh, would still be considered a child. Uh, be a high school sophomore if she were alive today. And yet, she'd already seen her mother, and now uh, the man who she was living with be executed. And she'd seen herself used as a prop in someone else's power play. These are big, complicated, dangerous schemes. Uh, and, and she was forced to navigate them when she was still a kid. She was questioned on suspicion of involvement with Thomas's treason. But here her youth probably helped her. Her steadfast denials of any involvement were believed, and she survived her first serious brush with uh, possible execution. And the next four years uh, seemed to have passed pleasantly enough. Elizabeth still liked and trusted her younger brother, uh, and he liked and trusted her, and she was content with him as king. And uh, that may have been one of the happier times in her life because she was free uh, to focus her time on academic pursuits. You know, already talked about her being very smart. She was what, I think if she was alive today, would have been described as a nerd, very interested in academic pursuits. And um, her hobby, which she pursued vigorously at that time, was translating important texts from other languages like Greek and Latin into English. And she produced some of the finest translations into English of classic works at that time. And she might have gone on living the life of a, uh, a noble scholar happily enough for years to come. Uh, 
But then tragedy struck again, and King Edward, uh, her little brother, died of tuberculosis just at the age of 15. And then it was Mary, Elizabeth's older sister, who became queen. And this immediately put Elizabeth in grave danger. Uh, as we talked about, the uh, the relationship wasn't terrible, but it wasn't great either. And more importantly, Mary was Catholic and Elizabeth was Protestant, which mattered a lot back then. Mary set about trying to restore the country to Catholicism, uh, and Protestants, correctly viewing Mary as a threat, literally a threat to their lives, she had a number of Protestant leaders executed, um, they began plotting to overthrow her, and Elizabeth, being next in line for the throne and Protestant, became an obvious focus. And so again, um, kind of through no fault of her own, Elizabeth uh, became the focal point of other people's treasonous plots. This culminated in what's called Wyatt's Rebellion, because it was led by the nobleman Thomas Wyatt, who we mentioned earlier, who planned to overthrow Mary's government by force and place Elizabeth on the throne. Uh, the rebellion failed, which led to the time in the Tower of London that we talked about earlier. Fortunately, as we discussed, Elizabeth survived, and I think part of the reason she survived is because she had built something of a relationship with Mary. They weren't close, but Mary at least regarded her as a sister with some affection, and I think that protected Elizabeth while uh, Mary's advisors were telling her that Elizabeth was a threat who needed to be gotten rid of. And so that, combined with the fact that Thomas wouldn't accuse her, was enough to keep her alive for a few more years, uh, which it turned out was all she needed, because Mary, in turn, died just a few years later in 1558, and Elizabeth, then just 25 years old, became the Queen of England. She must have been very surprised by this turn of events. Here she'd been disinherited and third in the line. Uh, I mean, it it required such an unlikely sequence of events for it to happen that uh, it must have seemed very improbable. Then again, uh, she was a very smart young woman and a planner, and she certainly considered the possibility. And it's clear that she educated herself in anticipation that she might one day be the ruler. In addition to her studies of language, she studied uh, politics, history, what passed for economics at the time. When she assumed the throne, she gave a speech. She was noted as being a particularly good public speaker. All accounts agree on this point, not only in the words she chose, but in her delivery her passion. People found her moving, inspiring. She said, as she assumed the crown, My lords, the law of nature moves me to sorrow for my sister. The burden that has fallen upon me makes me amazed. And yet, considering I am God's creature ordained to obey his appointment, I will thereto yield, desiring from the bottom of my heart that I may have assistance of his grace to be the minister of his heavenly will in this office now committed to me. And as I am but one body naturally considered, 
though by his permission a body politic to govern, so shall I desire you all to be assistant to me, that I, with my ruling and you with your service, may make a good account to Almighty God and leave some comfort to our posterity on earth. I mean to direct all my actions by good advice and counsel. And uh, as it happened, that was a signature of her, of her reign, that she was very good at picking advisors. And, and while she was uh, very strong-willed, and certainly the final decision in any major matter of state, uh, she was able to listen to dissenting views and encourage them. And she was able to delegate. She recognized that one person, not even a queen, uh, couldn't rule an entire country. Uh, and was very good at finding the right people to fill the other roles in government. As her triumphal progress wound through the city on the eve of her coronation ceremony, she was welcomed uh, joyously by the citizens, and greeted by orations and pageants. Uh, Elizabeth was openly delighted, gracious in her response to this, which endeared her to the spectators. Many found her to be uh, a breath of fresh air after everything that had happened to that point. Regardless of how surprised she must have been, she was very well prepared and moved immediately to resolve the great threats to her realm. Uh, the first order of business was the church settlement. Greek divide between Catholics and Protestants had to be resolved somehow. And she found a way to compromise on an issue that uh, you might not think you could compromise on. She restored the separation from the Catholic Church and the Pope, uh, making England, uh, the Church of England, independent from the Catholic Church permanently from that point on. But she also included some compromises. She didn't claim to be the supreme head of the Church, as Henry did, which many had considered blasphemy. Um she also restored a lot of the formalities to church worship, rejecting the informal preaching style of service favored by many Protestants. Uh, critics would say she made the Church of England into something of a Catholicism light, where it basically pres preserved a lot of the forms and traditions of the Catholic Church, just without the Pope at the head. And she also introduced some measure of religious tolerance, abolishing medieval blasphemy laws that Mary had used for her religious executions, and thereby reassuring Catholics that they would have some legal protections. It was messy, like all compromises, but uh, to a degree it worked, at least in England. Uh, and the religious divide that had threatened to tear England apart, settled down a bit. Not resolved, certainly, but calming enough that England could turn its attention to other things, like building its uh, its economy, its fleet, its, uh, its commerce, the things that would lay the groundwork for British power in the future. Now, to many of her subjects and advisor, the next order of business would have seemed to be uh, for Elizabeth to get married and produce an heir to the throne. But Elizabeth never married and never had children, and why is one of the favorite subjects of speculation among historians. 
Some speculate that the fate of her mother and Henry's other wives, to say nothing of Thomas Seymour's plot to marry her, resulting in his own execution, taught Elizabeth that marriage was a dangerous game for royals. Perhaps she feared that a husband would try to control her. There are some records that suggest she may have even had a medical condition that made childbearing impossible. What we know for sure is that she used the prospect of marriage to balance competing interests, including foreign princes, against each other, so long as powerful men in each faction, so long as princes from each country could hope to win her hand in marriage, then they wouldn't plot to overthrow her or make war on England. But if she did get married, then it would create one winner and a lot of angry losers who might then become threats. So she may have calculated that the advantages of uncertainty outweighed what she could hope to gain from even the best match. That said, her popular title as Virgin Queen was almost certainly not accurate. She uh, she had romances, uh, including a long-standing one with her childhood friend Robert Dudley, who she appears to have genuinely been in love with. She couldn't marry him because he was considered disreputable by most English nobles and his family, having fallen from grace some years earlier. And he lacked the powerful connections uh, that um, any proper consort to the queen would have had to have. Perhaps the fact that she wasn't able to marry the man she actually loved is yet another reason why she never chose to marry someone else. In any event, she strung the princes and noblemen of Europe along for decades, while all the while getting on with the business of actually ruling her country. And how did she rule her country? She promoted commerce and financial responsibility. England was in a great deal of debt when she came to office, and she curtailed spending while uh, promoting mercantile activity, uh, especially seagoing commerce. Uh, she, uh, she encouraged English adventurers to go to sea seeking uh, commercial opportunities uh, and, uh, if we're being honest here, uh, encouraging state-sanctioned piracy. She basically gave English captains license uh, to steal Give James Bond license to kill. Uh, she gave uh, the men who uh, who followed her uh, license to piracy, and they used that license to full effect, uh, going out on the high seas and robbing mostly the Spanish blind by intercepting the gold packed treasure ships that the Spanish were sending back from their colonies in America. At this time, England didn't have colonies yet. Uh, I think it's sometimes forgotten because we now think of uh, England as, as being such a major colonial uh, player that they were uh, relatively late to the game. And uh, the Spanish, to a lesser degree, the Portuguese were the ones who uh, had the big colonies in America, were making a lot of money mining precious metals and sending it back to Europe. And uh, it was really in stealing from the first colonialists that uh, 
England laid the groundwork for their own future colonies. Aside from that, um, her foreign policy was largely defensive. She, um, she tried to avoid getting involved in major foreign wars, especially on the ground, because she didn't really feel like a commander could be restrained once battle was joined. She did provide the Dutch with some aid in their struggle against Spain, but it was very cautious and limited. And some people even criticized her for uh, going halfway in her support for the Dutch and not really committing to anything. Um, but it appears that this was calculated on her part. That It wasn't that she didn't have the strength of, of will to commit to something. She just believed that... Uh, playing the sides against each other and avoiding major military engagements was the smart policy. That's what she promoted. At home, she promoted a sense of national identity. Uh, in particular, she promoted culture, arts, theater. She created an atmosphere where um, theater, poetry, music was encouraged. Uh, she, she had no patience for Puritan demands to close down playhouses, outlaw dancing. Uh, she used her power to protect the arts, and they flourished in her time in a way that uh, probably has had as much impact on the future as, as any of her economic and military choices. It was, after all, during this time that William Shakespeare wrote his plays, which are, are probably to this day the single greatest, most famous, most widely performed cultural performances ever to come out of the English language. She also promoted exploration. In addition to piracy, uh, English sea captains traveled around the world, charted new locations, found... Uh, found places that Europeans hadn't been there before and really created a, a realistic understanding of what the world looked like. And she navigated England through a number of crises, the most famous of which being in the Spanish Armada. Because of all of that piracy, the Spanish uh, were more than a little displeased with England. And eventually... Uh, partially because of that, partially because Elizabeth was Protestant and Spain was Catholic. Uh, the Spanish put together an enormous armada, the largest fleet of ships that uh, any European power had put together to date, uh, with a matching number of soldiers that they intended to send across to uh, conquer England, depose Elizabeth, and replace her with a Catholic figurehead. Uh, well, despite the fact that she had largely avoided war, she rose to the occasion and wasted no time um, dispatching her best people to intercept the Spanish fleet. And she personally uh, rode down to talk to her soldiers and inspire them to battle. She in one of her most famous speeches said, My loving people, we have been persuaded by some that are careful of our safety to take heed how we commit ourselves to armed multitudes for fear of treachery. But I assure you, I do not desire to live 
to distrust my faithful and loving people. I know I have the body of but a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and a king of England too. And think foul scorn that Parma or Spain or any prince of Europe should dare invade the borders of my realm. One of the most famous naval battles in history, uh, the English defeated the much larger Spanish Armada uh, and turned back the threat to the realm. And that was the last time that England was seriously threatened with foreign invasion uh, up until the Second World War. Elizabeth also faced some additional coup attempts. Uh, I won't get into every one of them. One thing you've probably picked up on as you've listened to this is that the the complexities of people uh, trying to be king or queen of England and all of their plotting to overthrow each other could take you all day to talk about and you still wouldn't even scratch the surface. I mean, there was backstabbing uh, of the backstabber of the backstabber of the backstabber. But suffice it to say, Elizabeth managed it and stayed in power, showing uh, ruthlessness where she needed to. She was not above the violence of her time. She authorized deaths herself. But uh, she did what she had to do, and she survived, and she really created a legacy that made England the major power that we know of historically. Elizabeth was crowned queen of a fractured, economically depressed, insignificant half of an island. Uh, By the time she died, and in a final stroke, she uh, made it known to her advisors that she favored James of Scotland to be her successor, uh, and in doing, managed to unite England and Scotland bloodlessly uh, after centuries of hostility and bloodshed between the two. It's kind of funny because we often think of England conquering Scotland, but in reality, in the end, by naming the King of Scotland to be the next King of England, in a way, Scotland conquered England. Uh, Conquered isn't the right word. Um, But in a way, the Scottish took over England, and that was perhaps Elizabeth's last gift to her people. Because when King James, the first of Scotland, became James the Sixth of England, he was crowned king of one of Europe's great powers, with the groundwork firmly laid for what would become the British Empire. Elizabeth was no saint, but She seemed to genuinely love her country and her people, and she worked her entire life to make her countrymen more secure and prosperous than they'd ever been before. And in doing, she provided perhaps history's greatest single example that a woman can be every bit as good a ruler as a man. 
she was, in the end, a complicated person who lived life on her own terms and refused to be bound by the restraints and expectations of her time. Elizabeth I, the Virgin Queen, who gave birth to an empire.